We've all come across bad manners in our lifetime. The strap hanger who spits in front of us on the subway platform, the man or woman who cuts into the line at the deli. But while it's easy to spot bad manners, it's harder to recognize good manners in today's fast-paced digital society. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. In his book, Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? A Modern Guide to Manners, author Henry Alford aims to find out what good manners look like in an era of constantly beeping cell phones and live tweeting. Henry's our guest this morning on Cityscape. Henry, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. First of all, how do you define good manners? It's so tricky, right? I mean, I think it's easier to say what bad manners are. You know, bad manners are are anything that make you feel more like a wet-lipped monkey than you actually are. Good manners, it's trickier. Is there a difference between manners and etiquette? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I define manners as the broad principles, like do unto others, whereas etiquette, I think, are the specific acts of those principles, like always ask someone if they need a ride home. Then I think protocol, that's even a a more specific subset of etiquette, and that's ask someone if they need a ride home, but do it before 8 o'clock because that's when the last train leaves. How would you describe the state of manners in the United States today? (laughs) The big question. Well, it's interesting because everyone wants to know that, you know, our manners getting worse today. I think that that's almost unquantifiable. I don't know how you'd need some Alfred Kinsey of behavior with some, you know, really cool looking graph paper to figure that out. I think it's hard to say. I think what you what we can say is that that manners are becoming increasingly relative, that every day it's almost as if we walk through a series of microclimates, that in this little group of friends, it's okay to pull out your cell phone and start talking because there are a couple of working mothers in this group and, you know, they're all putting out flames. But in this group with your work colleagues, you would never pull out your cell. But then in this other group, you know, so that you're constantly needing to calibrate behavior. You need a filter. You need a filter, right, in a way which, you know, in days of yore when we all lived in villages and we only interacted with people we knew – there is no need for that kind of stuff. And that's kind of the hit, the story of manners is it's all about our interactions with strangers. That like the first big surge of interest in manners in the United States was the first two decades of the 19th century. And that's when everyone was moving into cities and needing to to interact with strangers. And we also had to sort of crowd next to each other on mass transportation, Yeah, right? no, exactly. Yeah, you can trace it to, to the rise of public transportation, too, because we, we want to know what to, how, how, do, how do I talk to that lady on the bus? You open the book with a visit to Japan, a yeah. country that you describe as the Fort Knox of the World Manners Reserve. Well, I figured, you know, if you're writing a book about – it's like if you were writing a book about snails, I think you would get to Paris, you know? I think you'd, it would be in your interest to go there. Um, but, no, Japan is fascinating because um, they put such a high premium on, on decorum. Even sneezing Even is sneezing. something considered impolite, sneezing in public. Yes. that I had an etiquette teacher in Tokyo who said to me, sneezing, that's a dirty thing to do. <laughs> 
<laughs> so what do you do if you feel yeah. the urge to sneeze in public? Yeah, yeah. You implode. <laughs> you you put a cork in your mouth and you just you just collapse. <laughs> um, no, I thought the, the the interesting thing about Japan for me was you know as one Japanese guy said to me, he said, "I would never eat on the subway because that would paint a bad picture of what Japanese people are like." Now, find me an American who would ever say something like, you know, maybe if you were traveling abroad, you would say, oh, I don't want to be an ugly American. But typically, n- no, I don't uh, I don't think so. There's a lawmaker right now here in New York City who wants to ban eating on the subway. Do you think that makes sense when it comes to Oh, matters? right. Look at that. Well, I think, uh, weirdly, I would, I would get very specific with that kind of a law. Yeah, I think that we should... Um, I think that we could outlaw nachos. I think we could outlaw raw onions. For me, it's all about aroma and va- and va- and sound. What's going to be offensive on the subway? Yeah, yeah. But if someone wants to eat an apple or snap their gum, I'm totally cool with that. And I think once we do that one, then let's go for the people who are texting in movie theaters. To me, that's kind of freaky to see that sort of spectral glow, you know, to see that the glow, people lit up in the dark. It looks like they're being summoned by their alien leader. (laughs) Do you approach people in the movie theater who are doing that? I don't because I'm a little I can be a little bit shy. What I instruct people who are really irate about talkers in movie theaters or, or texters is, you know, if that's if you're that's really a problem for you, take a small pen light to the theater and shine it on the violators. Because, you know, the irony of manners is that the people who are enforcing them very often have worse manners than the initial violators. That's a little passive-aggressive, though, no? It is passive-aggressive, but it's so much better than the shusher. I mean, people who shush, the shushing is always louder than the people talking. So I think that the pen light or the little laser pinpoint, that that's, um, yeah, that's a better way to go. In the book, you explain how you once conducted an experiment in retaliatory manners. Basically, you fought bad manners with good manners. Indeed. How'd that work out for you? Well, with quote-unquote good manners. Um, And I am not proud of this, but this was the the genesis of the book, was I was in a grocery store in the West Village, and the gal behind the register dropped my apple on the floor and then put it in my bag without saying anything. So I, or the angry little man inside me said, oh, I'm sorry, and she said nothing. So I said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean for you to drop my apple like that. At which point she sort of stared off into the mid-distance as if receiving instructions from outer space. So that started, yeah, like a six-week-long retaliatory manners campaign where any time someone owed me an apology, I would say it just to have the words, I'm sorry, out into the universe. You have a problem when people say no problem when they're thanked for a favor. I do. And weirdly, I think this will be this book's legacy, you know, because I'm Pollyanna enough and naive enough to actually want to change the world. I don't think it's going to happen for me. But I do feel like this no problem thing is, is picking up steam. I think that people use that expression so wantonly and incorrectly. I think unless an actual problem has been averted, that saying no problem it's sort of false bravery. It's kind of like implied martyrdom. Um, I had a waiter the other night who said, would you like some more water? I said, no, thanks. He said, no problem. So it's sort of like, 
oh, for you to stand there and do nothing, that's not a problem for, oh, okay, because, you know, I've been trying to think of stuff for you to do ever since I walked in here. So what suffices? Just a simple, that's okay. Yeah, that's okay, or whatever. It just, yeah, the no problem. It's so, um, yeah, I just, I think we can nip it in the bud. Speaking of waiters, what's this thing you have with touching waiters? Oh, well, I felt like it was important to cop to my own bad manners. Everyone thinks that bad manners are something that other people have. We always have an excuse, didn't get enough sleep, so sorry, in a rush, et cetera, et cetera. So in this book, I cop to my own bad manners, the worst of which is that I play a game in restaurants called Touch the Waiter, where people sitting at a table decide who can uh, to see who can touch the, their waiter the most times without the waiter figuring out. How did you come up with this game? I actually heard about it. A friend of mine was playing it, and I was on a vacation with my mom and my sister in Nova Scotia, and we had Edward, the server, Edward, you know, first name right up front, who was so attentive. Like, this dude was, um, uh, he unfolded my mother's napkin and put it on her lap. I mean, we didn't want to just touch this dude. We wanted to floss him. <laughs> he was so, uh, so loving. And, yeah, you only do it to a way, you do it to that kind of a way. You would never do it to an unconfident or a shy person. You do it to someone who's putting out who's putting out some love. And this totally goes under the radar of the waiter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They never find out. The one time I got busted, um, I took my assistant, who's a guy who does a lot of comedy improv, so I thought, oh, that's a good fit. And Ryan, my assistant, couldn't do it. And he's actually so polite, he's Canadian. And so finally, we're having lunch in the East Village, and I said to the waitress, hey, Ryan and I play this game. Would you mind just touching him so he can get his training wheels off? She did. Half an hour later, a second server comes out who was kind of backing away as she took our... She was clearly kind of weirded out. She said, are you the touch-me guys? Ryan and I crept out of that restaurant like two neighbors who had met each other on a Megan's Law website. It, 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 yeah, the, the tension was palpable. It is a little creepy, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little. It's a, a tiny bit creepy. I, I ain't proud of it. Like the retaliatory manners, I'm opening the heart. I'm, I'm oh, th- this is my wound. I'm, I'm saying I, too, sometimes screw up. Because if I don't say that, you know, here I am, an, a, apparently an, a manners authority. Here I am talking to George about it. If I don't cop to this stuff, then no one will, and no, will, nothing will ever change. So important for us to admit when we are actually being rude, when we I realize think so. it. Yeah, no, I have a whole chapter in the book where you know I call people, uh, where I call people in about forty different professions and say, "What rude, unintentionally rude questions are you asked?" A lot of times, our bad manners come from ignorance. Like I'm always I used to always ask cab drivers in New York or a lot of people with with foreign accents. I would say where are you from? Because I'm someone who loves to travel, love love to hear about exotic locations. Where are you from? That question, if that's directed at someone who it turns out is living in the United States, that could be a rude question. That's someone who probably wants to be perceived as American before he wants to be perceived as Nigerian. That's something that I do all the time. Okay, with cab right. Drivers, so there's so. one. Hmm. Here's here's one that's even more endemic: is the not RSVPing that, that we all ride out. You know, we send in our regrets at like you know the day before the party. Well, as it turns out, if that's a big party or that's a party being thrown by an institution, they are probably 
inviting people in waves. You know, there's probably an A list, a B list, a C list. Weddings, you know, people have weddings. They do that all the time. So if you are gumming up the works by not sending in that regrets, you're actually keeping someone else from getting invited. I sent a birthday invitation out this year via Facebook for the first time. Uh And some people responded, but a whole lot of people did not respond. What do you think of that? Interesting. Facebook is such a manners border town. It's really tricky. And I feel like, again, this idea that manners are becoming more and more relative, it's a tricky one because some people, because everyone is using it differently. And so I think you have to extend the benefit of the doubt in that on Facebook much more than you would anywhere else. Because, you know, admittedly, there's some people who check in on Facebook Mm -hmm. once every six months. But then most of the people who are very active it's pure promotion. I mean, it's like advertising or something. Be it, you know, whether they're they're pimping their band or their book or even their children, you know, and that's a big Facebook question is, you know, can I put my sonogram picture as my profile <laughs> picture? And I think I'm thinking no, because I'm thinking you probably have friends who have or who are having trouble conceiving. Can I put those party pictures on Facebook? Again, I'm I'm thinking, well, be really careful because make sure that everyone who sees that picture was invited to the party. Otherwise, you're going to hurt some feelings. Is it okay for someone to respond to someone via Facebook, someone who called you up and asked you a question, left a voicemail, and you go on Facebook and you respond to them that way? Oh, I think not. I think there's like an implicit communications hierarchy, and I think you've got to match the incoming vehicle at the same level or go up. Or get more intimate. But I think you can't go down. That that can be seen as a diss. You have an issue with people who respond to lengthy emails with thanks as THX. Oh, oh, that is just the lowest blow. I mean, obviously, if it's a... If it's a you know a fi- a rapid fire exchange where you're going back and forth and someone does THX, totally cool. But yeah, if you write someone a lovely a longish email and all you get back is a tiny little turd of a THX, ah, uh, 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 I I can't I can't even. How do you deal with that when that happens to you? What do you do? Well, what I do <laughs> just for my own self therapeutic needs is I'll highlight the THX. Make it larger. Add the letters A and K. You know, just for my own amusement. But no, there's nothing you can't. You just you look the other way. You grin and bear it, which is what you really should be doing in so many of these instances. When someone calls you Hun or Dollface, for instance, I think you grin and bear it until it becomes so awful that yeah, then maybe you could use retaliatory manners and and Hun Hun a Hun. Doll face a doll face. Fight fire with fire. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you have to. I wouldn't. I'm not sure. I would th- thx a thxer because I'm not sure they would get the message. Yeah, that one. I I would. I would just look the other way. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. Our guest this morning is investigative humorist Henry Alford. He's here to talk about his new book, Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? A Modern Guide to Manners. Getting back to your trip to Japan, you write in the book that no aspect of Japanese culture is as intensely gracious 
as the opening of department stores oh, in the morning. Now you how, gotta do that. Yeah, what's up with that? You gotta do that. If you go to if you go to uh, Japan, particularly Tokyo, um, if you are among the first people to arrive at a department store in the morning, that all of the employees, all the salespeople, line up in front of their counters. Uh, so there's a row of like thirty or forty people, and as you, the customer, walk down that aisle, they are doing like the baseball stadium version of the wave, but it's right there in front of the Lancome counter. And you have never felt so loved in your life. And you get the sense that they actually mean it. They're really welcoming you that warmly, or are they just doing their job? absolutely. Yeah, no, because they're smiling, and no, there's no sense of, you know, sort of robotic duty at all. They're they're really enjoying it. It only lasts for about, I'm going to say, two or three minutes, so you do have to be there right away. But no, it is a it's it's a form of graciousness unlike anything else. It, it's like a car wash of 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 kindness. I did this just the other day in the Stop and Shop in Westchester County, where I live, and now I know never, never, ever do this in Japan, and that's break off bananas from the larger bunch. Oh. <laughs> Oops, you learned that the hard way, didn't you? <laughs> I did. I broke off four bananas from a bunch, and the the cash register guy who didn't speak any English was, I mean, he looked he looked like I was, you know, going to reach out and, and, like, rip a vein out of his neck. Um, he was so not into that. So, weirdly, I had a rubber band in my pocket, so I pantomimed, oh, do you want me to rubber band them together? No, no, even, that was going to be even worse. Then I pantomimed, do you want me to put them back where I got, them? no, no, no. Finally, he takes them out of my hand, puts them next to the cash register, and, you know, ultimately, I don't know what his plans for those four bananas were, but I think maybe he was going to incinerate them in a purification ritual at dawn. Did you ever get an answer to that cultural difference? (laughs) Specific to bananas. Yeah. Uh, What's up with that? Why can't you break the bananas off the bunch? Right? You would think. I guess they do not want you tampering with the fruit. But they want you to slurp in their restaurants. They want you to slurp your noodles. Yeah, weirdly, look at that. Yeah, because that's considered good manners. And I even asked someone, well, you know, what if if I don't slurp? Is that bad manners? And they said, no, you're fine. You're you're such a, a gringo that no one's You'll get away say. with it. Exactly. <laughs> you write that if your journey to Japan taught you anything, it was that human relations are sort of like bathrooms. Now, how are human relations like bathrooms? Well, <clears throat> I do have this sort of central metaphor that I've always operated from, which is that Life is like a public bathroom, and we're perpetually inheriting the toilet seat. Okay. Meaning that every time you emerge from a single commode facility, all eyes are on you. And even if you were just in there messing with your hair again, everyone's going to assume that the state of the toilet seat is of your doing. So my feeling is give it a quick wipe. You know, and I and I realize, you know, that to the readers of this book, I'm saying you you please spend twenty five dollars to buy my book so that I can tell you to wipe off toilet seats. Uh, it's a it's a tough sell, George. It's a very tough I sell. would <laughs> imagine you haven't seen the bathroom here Uh-oh. where I go. I don't think I necessarily <laughs> want to clean up what's on the toilet bowl there. <laughs> well, so this is the I mean, that's sort of the level where I start off in the book is this idea that, yeah, I'm doing I'm I have basically good manners, largely out of a sense of humiliation. As I spend more and more time thinking about manners and writing about manners, I've come to what I hope is a larger 
idea about manners, which is that, you know, I think that usually when we hear the word manners, we think what you shouldn't do, Mm -hmm. right? In that sort of Emily Post, that old school style. I think it'd be really cool if when we heard the manners, we thought what you might also do, right? That I think manners can be a form of, almost like a form of activism. So... Yeah, so that's. How about if I just leave a note? That wasn't me who left those (laughs) remains on the toilet seat. A yellow post it. (laughs) There you go. I like it. One might not expect manners to be a high priority in prison, but there's a story in your book that shows that they are a high priority in prison. Oh, yeah. I interviewed this um, former crack dealer who spent a fair amount of time in the in the Huska, and he, uh, you know, I asked him, there must be a lot of, of specific, you know, mores in prison. He went off on this, it's like two pages in the book where he's just talking about, you know, if you get food or candy, you never put it on the bed, you know, never publicly display it. Anytime you leave the dining room table, you knock twice to alert. Just these ve- this very elaborate code of behavior. And, you know, if I said to you, elaborate code of behavior rooted in social structure, by which people determine their place in an environment. You know, you would think, oh, he's talking about an Edith Wharton novel. But no, I'm talking about prison. Your study of manners included conversations with experts on the subject, including Miss Manners herself, Judith Martin. Indeed. Did anything she say about the subject surprise you? Oh, totally. We talked about the origins of Southern manners, um, specifically things like saying the expression, hey, y'all, or calling people who are non-relations uncle or aunt, or saying uh, like Mr. George or Mr. Henry, that all of that stuff uh, came from household slaves, that plantation owners in the 19th century very often knew money didn't and didn't, didn't want to spend the time with their kids, that they would excuse me, hand over the care of their kids to their household slaves, many of whom were um, high-ranking members of their tribes and who had all sorts of deference and graciousness and who passed on all these really lovely attributes to the plantation owner's kids. You taught Miss Manners how to steal a cab, how to go upstream. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> that wasn't demonstrating good manners, yeah. was it? <laughs> yeah, Right. Hmm. Well, I don't know if we'll, we will see Miss Manners stealing cabs uh, out on the street. But no, I did feel like it was she didn't want to meet me <clears throat> at her apartment when I inter or her house when I interviewed her. So she came to my hotel and she did arrive via cab. So naturally, we had a conversation about cabs. And the last chapter of the book, I find myself as a tour guide for foreigners who are visiting New York. And I realized that, well, what I need to teach these people is New York manners. And one New York manner is how to upstream. And, you know, the way you upstream is you go at least a block upstream so that people don't see what you're doing. Only if, you know, you absolutely must steal a cab. So I thought old Miss Manners needed needed a taste of that. What else did you teach tourists? Well, the other New York manners that I that I think are sort of specific and local are um, cutting in lines. Of course, that's something that we New Yorkers are are really good at. But no, the the biggie, of course, the the thing that I was totally flabbergasted by when I moved to New York was this idea that New Yorkers think it's totally cool to ask someone how many square feet is your apartment or home, 
and what do you pay or what did you pay for mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah. That for us, it comes out of this feeling of commiseration that we're all being screwed, so therefore we can have this conversation. Right, you're but paying $1,600 for 400 square feet, what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas if you're a newcomer, you know, as I was when I first moved to New York, or as these foreigners who I give tours to, that's kind of akin to asking how much money do you make a year, mm-hmm. right? Because if you don't know the logic behind that, that's kind of freaky. So I have this one uh, – I had one in exchange with this very lovely Dutch school teacher who I was showing around the city. And I said, how would you ask a New Yorker that? And she kept equivocating, kept equivocating. And I said, no, if you really had to ask, what would you do? And she said – Uh, I have seen on uh, television shows where sometimes someone will write a number down on a piece of paper and say, is this number comfortable for you? (laughs) And she said, I would do that. I would write down a number and say, is this number comfortable (laughs) for you? Many times when you go to a cocktail party, the first question someone asks you is, what do you do for a living? Yeah. Now, I think that's uniquely American, right? That is pretty American. Is that rude? That's well <clears throat> from my point of view that's that's so much better than the stonewall right um you know the worst scenario is the people who won't talk to you i was always raised that when you go to a party and you see that wall flower, you see that person standing alone you walk over to them and you chat them up right uh and i'm amazed how often i am made to feel like i'm hitting on that person or like i'm schmoozing them or like i'm doing something slightly nefarious so that's worst case scenario i think what do you do yeah yeah i think we can do better but i think it's a start you know, ideally, you find, you seize on some topic of mutual interest. How do you know the host? What, look at that. Is that flocked wallpaper? Whatever. Just something about the room or the people in it just to get over the hump. You took it upon yourself to become an etiquette columnist, if you will, right? You asked your friends yeah. to send you their dilemmas. Well, my yeah, and the point is that, you know, when you think about manners columnists, that's a pretty easy gig, right? I mean, it's mostly common sense. They're doling it out, and then boom, next week we're on to the next uh, series of, of problems. There's no accountability there. You know, uh, uh, compare what the average parent has to do vis-a-vis teaching other people manners to what Judith Martin has to do you know, it's a world of difference. It's much it's much tougher. So I felt like if I'm going to walk my walk, yeah, that I need to find five of my friends uh, who have some sort of pre-existing problem, and I will give them six weeks of my time, and they can check in with me over that period of time, and I will coach them and guide them. And what would you say your success rate was? I had two definite wins, one pretty good, and then two no Total misses. Yeah, yeah. The tr- the problem is, it's very. It was easy for me to change the behavior if the person writing me was the person at fault. When it was, you know, the noisemaker in my office, you know, the, the person who sits next to me in the cubicle. How do I shut that down? That was mu- that's much trickier, obviously. Um, and that's the kind of thing where, yeah, you probably want to sort of parachute into that office to be able to really to really fix it. Ultimately, who should we blame for bad manners? Should we blame parents for not teaching their kids how to act properly? Well, I think it starts there. Yeah, I think the people with good manners, yeah, that they're going to hear it there first. Then they're going to get some reinforcement at school and community. You know, it's really 
easy to point at the media like you look at those reality TV shows. But it's true. I mean, if you if you don't get the parental supervision and you're a 10 year old kid and you're watching a lot of Kardashians and whatnot, you know, I think you probably would grow up thinking that it's an essential good to have a signature stock line that you blurt out every 15 seconds. You kiss your mother with that face, you know, that kind of in order to get more screen time. Right. Because the whole the ethos of reality TV is who's who can be the most appalling to get the most screen time. If that's your reference, I think we're in trouble. What is the Isle of Lovely Gestures? <laughs> Sounds like a nice place to live. <laughs> it's Yes, I, I hope it is for some people. Well, again, at this point where I realize, you know, manners can be so much more than someone saying, you you messed up the bathroom, that I, that I just said, well, maybe what we need to start doing is compiling a list of what I call lovely gestures, things that you could do that would be really lovely manners, like... Say your partner or spouse, um, say you're going to a function, the stakes of which are much higher for your partner or spouse. Wouldn't it be a lovely gesture, sound of bluebirds, twittering, 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 <laughs> lovely gesture? Uh, wouldn't it be nice if you said to your spouse or partner, do you want to pick out my wardrobe? Right? Yeah, that would be nice. George, I'm saving relationships here. <laughs> I'm saving marriages, saving jobs. Uh, or a tiny one, this I got from Japan. In Japan, if people are going up an escalator and they're just riding, they're not walking, they all stand flush right so that there's this through-going traffic lane. Occasionally you see that in the United States, but in Japan, everywhere. I think that's a totally lovely gesture. Is giving this book to someone as a gift a demonstration of good manners? <laughs> yeah, right. It, that's a great question. <laughs> I've just started doing book signings, yeah, and I wonder, hmm, manners book as a gift. No, I think it's totally <laughs> fine. And usually I will write, um, I'll say, you know, do you want me to sign it for your your friend Mindy? And they say yes, and I'll say, for Mindy, who has impeccable manners. Uh, so <laughs> Nicely played. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The book is Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? A Modern Guide to Manners. Henry Alpert, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Henry Alpert has written for the New York Times and Vanity Fair for over a decade. Once again, his new book is called Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? A Modern Guide to Manners. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend. Manners, 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 manners